Welcome to the teaching ministry at Carthus Creek Community Church. Well, good morning, Carthus Creek. Glad that you are joining us here on this amazingly hot weekend, wouldn't you say? My goodness. We want to welcome also the many of you watching or listening online wherever you might be today at a cottage or somewhere else or even another country. We're glad that you're with us uh, this morning. Well, this is the third part in our summer series out of the book of Proverbs. And so if you've got your scripture here this morning, we'd like you to open it. Or if you have it virtually, we'd like you to turn or or navigate to it now. We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 3 today. I want to start today's message in a different place. I want to start by reading an article from Time magazine, which I shared with a few of you on Wednesday night at prayer. This article is written by a very significant person I had never heard of before. His name is Jonathan Sachs. He's one of the most important Jewish rabbis currently in the world. He is the chief rabbi over the whole United Kingdom. And this is what he wrote in Time magazine. Listen closely. It is profound and it is hopeful. Towards the end of his recent book, he writes, Civilization, the historian Niall Ferguson drops into his analysis an explosive depth charge. He quotes a member of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, part of a team tasked with the challenge to discover why it was Europe having lagged so behind China to the 17th century, suddenly overtook China, rising to predominance and then dominance. At first he said, well, we thought it was your guns. You had better weapons than we all did. But then we delved deeper and thought, well, it must be your political system. And then we searched deeper still and concluded, no, no, it was your economic system. But for the past 20 years, we, this is the Chinese community researching this, have realized that in fact, it was not your guns, it was not your economy, ready? It was your religion, Christianity. It was the Christian foundation of social and cultural life in Europe that made it possible for the emergence of capitalism and then democratic policies. Equally interesting, this historian Ferguson repeats the point made by both the editor and also the Washington correspondent of The Economist and quotes their book, God is Back. While Christianity, they write, is in decline in Britain and most of Europe, it is growing and it is thriving in China, where the number of people on Sunday morning is greater, ready, than the total number of the Communist Party today. Amen. This is the land that in 1958, Chairman Mao declared religion free. The people flocking to churches, this rabbi writes, are not as Karl Marx would have predicted, the poor or the oppressed searching for the opium of the people. No, no. They're the young, the hardworking, the upwardly mobile entrepreneurs for whom Christianity offers an ethical framework and a structured view of life and its disciplines in a society that is experiencing rapid transition. Now, this is when it gets interesting. As a non-Christian, this is the chief rabbi writing, I find it fascinating that Europe is losing the very thing that once made it great, while China, the world's fastest growing economy, is now discovering it. China, the home of Confucianism, Taoism, and it's even its own brand of communism, is discovering Christianity. That is something no one could have foreseen. What has China realized that the West is rapidly forgetting? That a civilization is only as strong as its faith. 
As a culture grows old and tired, as people bore more, borrow more and save less, as they value present pleasure over future growth, so they begin to lose belief in the practices that made their society strong in the first place. Societies, he writes, start growing old when they lose faith in the transcendent, when they lose faith in an objective moral order and end by losing faith in themselves. But then this rabbi writes, there is an alternative The West can rediscover what the prophet Jeremiah called the devotion of your youth. Judaism and Christianity, he writes, share an astonishing capacity for self-renewal. That's exactly what happened, he says, in Judaism after the tragedies from the Babylonian exile all the way to the Nazi Holocaust. And that is what is now happening, he writes, as a Jewish rabbi to Christianity in many parts of the world. And then he says, and it can happen here too. We are only as strong as our faith, he writes. The truth is, once the West's unique selling proposition now comes with a label made in China, but it's still worth buying. Wow. When I read this for the first time, the very first thing I did is I praised God. I am so thankful that as China is rising, God is moving, and many of its people and its current and its future leaders are meeting Jesus. They are our brothers and sisters. Praise God that there are more Jesus followers than there are now in the Communist Party. The gates of hell tried overcoming the church. They tried for years by death and torture, intimidation and imprisonment. But God, he's God, did greater things. And the amazing thing now that we need to encounter and think about is now our brothers and sisters, they will become salt and light in a country that is going to affect all of us for the next four to six generations at least. But there's more than this. As the rabbi said, renewal is coming back to the devotion of your youth. Now I need to tell you this morning as a pastor, I do not want a Christian culture again. I do not want a religion based on Christianity, and I do not want a Christian nation, because Christian nations never have existed. We are in this world, we are not part of it. The renewal I seek, the renewal that Jeremiah speaks of, is what happened so long ago in Britain, so long ago in North America, and many parts of Europe. It is one where thousands of people personally encountered Jesus Christ, a faith that was personally held, not just generationally given or culturally mandated. I want to see a renewal that those who claim to know God know him and actually obey him and love him and really meet him. My life goal as a pastor and as a leader is not about using our faith politically to save the declining West. My real cry is that the real renewal that this rabbi speaks about blazes across the West through en masse personal encounters with God through Jesus. But the thing that we all need to struggle with this morning sitting in the West is this. Whether that renewal happens or not, we who are left in the West as it declines who are followers of God, need to simply love him, obey him, and be faithful. This could stem the dark tide that is among us now, but it may not. But the point is this. We as followers of God in a new way, in a new century, in a new place, are called to be one thing, faithful. And if there is one book that outlines what it means to be faithful in any century, in any time, in the good, the great, or the bad times. It is the book of Proverbs. 
Proverbs is given to those that already personally have a relationship with God. It teaches us how to love God and others, which of course is in the end how we become salt and life. So my charge this morning to us is in our rapidly changing world, where what we once knew is going away, let us not look to what will not last. Let us not look or defend our way of life or global influence. Let us only look to the one who never changes, God. Let us go again to the book of Proverbs to see and hear and understand and then be changed. And if the West in its time is saved, that's just a bonus. Because what lasts forever is not politics or ways of life. What lasts are God and who? People. So today we begin chapter 3, understanding that the wisdom of God is significant to us, to our family, to those around us, and maybe even our culture. As we begin, let me share something I discovered this week in chapter 3. Never caught it. In the first 12 verses, there is a rotational pattern, a conversation between almost God and us. All the odd verses in verse 1 through 12 are about our responsibility towards God if we know him. And all the even verses are God's responsibility to us. Hear the word of God this morning and be encouraged. Remember, it's in the context of a dad and son talking. My son, verse 1, don't forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart. We start again with the call, not just to recall, but to really know God, to have God's word, his ideas, his worldview in our heart at the center of who we are. What the dad is saying to the son is not just some good ideas. They are actually based on the first five verses in the Bible. They are based on God's word themselves. And watch again. This is a call not just to listen or just to have an open mind. It is a call to obey. The father says simply and straightforwardly to the son, if you have a relationship with God, you must know his word and you must keep it. Then, he says, then and only then, verse 2, will they prolong your life of many years and bring you prosperity. See, the first motivation in this conversation is reward. But again, let me remind all of us that Proverbs are guidelines for godly living. They are not divine mandated promises. One wrote, all things being equal, those who choose to follow God's ways of living as taught by the wise father will live longer than those who flaunt these same commands. Peace is promised, but it just doesn't mean absence of war or strife. It really means a life that is rich, meaningful, a life full of color, purpose. It's an ordered life. Verse 3, back to the son. Let the love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. This is a call for us to go back to our first love, the devotion of our youth. It again roots us back in the heart of our experience, a relationship with God. It is a call for an obedient life. We must have the word of God externally around us and internally in our hearts. We must all be people of God formed by the living words, written word. The Son and all of us are called, interestingly here, to be loving and faithful. I read this time and time again this week, and I missed the call. The love here, the word love, is that again, that word hesed. And as we discovered last week, it is marriage love, covenantal love. It is agreed upon love. Again, this morning, for the many of you join us here or online right now who do not know God personally yet through Jesus... 
of Jesus, who is God, fully seen and revealed. Wisdom and Proverbs will never fully come to you because you do not have a Hesed experience yet. You need covenantal love. You need to be in a relationship with God. Then Proverbs is given to you. You have to say yes to the marriage before you get married, and then you get the benefits of this marriage. At the heart of any long-lasting, authentic marriage, we all know this, whether we're single or divorced or married, the truth is that a long-lasting marriage, it's based on a love that is beyond the feelings of any season, and it is committed and it's expressed through faithfulness. Actually, it's about obeying wedding vows and viewing them as covenant, not just as a contract. And interestingly, the words here are paired time and time again when people encounter the living God himself, love and faithfulness. When Moses, the great lawgiver, actually met God in the most personal of ways, where his glory passed by Moses and he covered his face, and then Moses was given the great Ten Commandments that have formed all of us here today. Listen to how God not only describes himself and his actions. Exodus 34, 6. And God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord. The compassionate, the gracious, God, slow to anger, abounding in love, hesed, and faithfulness. Here's the point this morning. As God is committed to us in covenant, as God is faithful to us, so we must be the same to him. We must reflect him like the moon reflects the light of the sun. And so as we choose time and time in small and large ways to be faithful, verse 4 becomes our reality. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and people. This is a consequence of walking with God. God and fellow human beings will respect you and honor you. You will have grace, favor, a good reputation, not with all, but with many. Do you see why this matters in a culture? Do you see why the West is declining? This is disappearing. And then we come to the verse. The verse that if you've done church for a while, so many quote, so many claim, yet rarely people understand what it really means. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths what? Straight. To trust in God again is a call for us not to trust in our own abilities, gifts, money, education, or resources. This actually is not a little chicken soup for the soul. This is a radical call to understand that we as human beings are not independent. We are not in control. We, though we are educated or have money or history or family or jobs, these can never become the place of capital T, trust. As one pastor wrote, This verse is often understood as a promise of guidance, sometimes even as a warrant for making choices that go against our own judgment. People say this all the time, well, it seems crazy, John, but I felt the Lord leading, and they quote this verse. Now, however, that may be true, and God leads this way. A study of this verse in its context, the person writes, will challenge this understanding. See, in short, the teaching of this whole chapter and this verse urges us as readers and hearers to give up a fantasy of self-determination and self-sufficiency and turn to a wisdom and a guide and a protection from the real danger that we rarely think about, our own invented self-destruction. What is the real result of trusting the living God of heaven and earth? What is the real result in not being seduced into the idea that what gives us value, inherent worth as a human being, is not what we do, 
what, what happens when we start saying, well, maybe my success and my wealth doesn't make me just who I am? Well, the answer is found here in verse 6. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will make your paths straight. Follow God. Acknowledge God. And your life path will be straight. Your life will have less obstacles. Now, again, many of you here online, you may be cussing in your mind at this moment, saying, that's just not true, John. Uh, Fine, quote the verse. Fine. But look at my life. I mean, I've loved God, I've followed him, and obstacles have become my best friend. Do not forget what Proverbs is about, though. Proverbs, at its heart, is about prevention. It is about prevention of self-injury. You will not be the author of sin against God. You will not be the author of sin against yourself, your family, others, our local church. You will not become a mocker or a fool, the one that produces a physical, emotional, or spiritual obstacles. Remember, Proverbs is saying that you, if you choose to follow wisdom, will not be the author of evil. Others may sin against you. They may choose not to be wise, but you... You will not be one inventing obstacles in your life. That's why it says in verse 7, to you, to myself, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Do not not depend on what you think or feel that should be right. Your own understanding. As another reflected, if the son thinks he is wise, he will try to do everything out of his own resources. Let me just stop there. How many of you try continually to live your Christian life based on what you do versus the power of the Spirit? Unwise. This, he writes, will be insufficient. The opposite of being wise in one's own eyes is fearing God. The fear of God puts puts one's own ability and resources in proper perspective. They never work in the end. See, if we love God as a community, if we love wisdom, if we fear God, that is, if we live as a covenantal partner with God, then we will systematically over time move from evil. We will shun those things that we may even right now love. We may have a struggle with something. We may have a love-hate relationship with sin, but we will walk away from the so-called normal processes of life that our culture loves because holiness will be more and more satisfying and the old, crooked, dark, foolish ways will begin to go away. It's what the old theologians used to call just simply holiness or sanctification. As you fear God, as we embrace wisdom, we will shun evil. And what is the result of shunning evil? This is what God says back to us, verse 8. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. This again is not a promise, but, but it's true. It's heaven's incentive to us. If you do right, if you obey, if the Ten Commandments are not burdensome, but acts of love back to God, your mind will be clear of what? Guilt. You will not be riddled by what? Shame. Your body physically, emotionally, sexually, spiritually will not be riddled with the after effects of the use and abuse of breaking God's law. God is not the killer of parties. He's a protector of stupid children. That is why God loves us. Because he knows, and I don't mean stupid like idiot. I mean just we think we know better and history tells us and we know in our own lives we don't. God comes and says, I want to give you nourishment for your bones, health to your body. Now all of us are going, well, this sounds great so far. God is giving me lots. I'm in. 
But then God chooses to go to the heart of much of our own struggles with God, especially in the West. And so the dad now says to the son to hear us here and us online. So how can we trust God and not ourselves? What would be the very issue that brings home the whole conversation? Oh, I know, money. Honor the Lord, verse 9, with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. God says, turn over 10% of what you make. Some of you are going, yes, I'm not a farmer. No, it counts. God says, turn over 10% of what you make, what the Bible calls a tithe or a first fruit of your wealth. It was to be given at that time to the temple officials who collected tithes and was given to God's work. This is not talking about supporting charities, though they may be good. This is talking about giving of your time, but your money to the things of God. Why? We are called to give, not out of duty, but love. We are called to give as an act of worship. Alan told us that. But we are also called to give, ready? As a spiritual discipline to help not only the kingdom of God move forward, but to remind every one of us that all we have, we don't own. It's God's anyway. As I've said time and time again at Crothers Creek, this needs to mark us as a church, and it does not mark us as a church because of one thing. Many of us here do not trust God. When you trust God deeply, you'll see it in your pocketbook. Your lifestyle will change because you will understand the things of God are more important than anything else you would want to have. What's amazing is most of the time people come to me and say, John, people that have the gift of giving or have discovered the joy of giving, they go, John, I... I hate when you have to get up and talk about money. Can't, can't you just tell them? There's so much joy. And I go, I try, and they look at me like this. And they're like, no, don't they understand? Like, I used to just be such a materialist, and now I start giving. And, and, and God, I, and I need to say to you this morning, I, I need to say, there is joy when you give. We're Christians, not materialists. There is joy when you learn to give to the Lord. There's joy when you trust Him. Yeah, there's five people clapping. 400 are still like, you haven't seen my mortgage payment. Well, you should talk to God about that. What does the Lord say in verse 10? When you start giving to the Lord, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim with new wine. Obviously not a Baptist verse, but a biblical one. (laughs) Well, I would have been taught it was water with juice, but they're just wrong on that. That's a different sermon. Anyway, one said, isn't it paradoxical? That the very truth of scripture is the more you're willing to give God and honor him with your wealth in the local church and beyond that, you actually will turn out and be blessed yourself. The dad brings this section to an end this way. My son, don't despise the Lord's rebuke or discipline. Don't resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, uh, as a father, the son he delights in. God corrects us out of love. God usually does it through leaders, his word, communities, points like this right now. He does not want his people to continue in these life-damaging attitudes, these sinful behaviors that tarnish his glory and our enjoyment. Proverbs, Proverbs themselves actually are rebuke, and even the whole Bible is described that way. All scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so the person of God will be equipped to do every good work. See, God, whether you know it or not this morning, 
has challenged much of what we've been taught, much of what we hold true, much of what runs our culture, our lives, much of what even drives us as Christians. Here, one of the best summaries of this prophetic challenge. One person simply said, readers too are challenged to hand over the fantasy of callous independence, of self-determination, freedom to make up your own moral rules, total ownership of goods, and freedom from correction. Together taken, the message is clear. You cannot be masters of your own destiny. You cannot be your own God. Now, as I read this this week, I thought, well, I was done here. I mean, this was intense, this was life-changing, this was radical, but the dad's not done. After he gives this really intense conversation, then the dad almost gets really giddy, and he breaks out in a song, a hymn that again outlines the real blessings for anyone that would really embrace God and the wisdom he liberally gives. So this is what he wrote. Blessed, verse 13, is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding, for she is more profitable than silver, yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you can desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. Her left hand are riches and honor. In her ways they are pleasant. All her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her. Those who lay hold of her will be blessed. By wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundation. Understanding he set in the heaven's place. Knowledge, by his knowledge the deeps were divided and by the clouds the the drop the dew. Wisdom, he says, is better than anything we could purchase because in itself it brings life. Interestingly, I don't know if you caught it, did you notice that he compares wisdom to the tree of life? This song invokes memories of Eden. Wisdom is a tree that gives life, something lost so long ago to all of us, something so powerful, so precious, so, so wanted primordially that we do everything and anything to fill the void caused when we were all removed from the tree of life. This image here is poignant, it's eternal. There have only been three trees in scripture, really. The tree of good and evil, the tree of life, and then the one we cherish the most, the cross. The tree of good and evil was placed in the garden so we would have real choice. We're made in the image of God. We're not robots, so choice needed to be there. And of course, we know the story that we as humans decided we knew better. And so we decided we could be God. And so we look and we took and we ate and we fell. And God swiftly removed us from Eden. For there was another tree in that garden too, the tree of life. And if it had been eaten while we were in a damned state, we never could have got back to God. Genesis 3.22, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us. Knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Think about this. In mercy, God kicked us out of Eden. In mercy, he removed us from his life and presence. But that's not the end. Here in Proverbs, wisdom is the first sign that the tree of life is going to be given again. There is a future that's breaking into the now. And we see that fully in another tree. The cross came, the true tree of life that cleared a path so we could know God again. And then, of course, we know when the end of time comes, we who fear God and know God, who have met Jesus personally, it says in the book of Revelation, verse, chapter 22, verse 1, that the angel showed John what it was going to be like. And at the center was a river of life. And beside and covering that river was the tree of life bringing the healing to the nations. Proverbs is the foreshadow of Jesus and our eternal home in a new heavens and a new earth. That's a good amen, by the way. It's a beautiful thing. So dad sings. He admonishes and then he sings. Can you imagine what the son is saying? What is dad going to say now? I'm totally overwhelmed. ADHD. I'm done. 
What do I do now? I mean, he's talked about wisdom. He, he's weaved all of God's work together in a few sentences. What is going to happen next? Well, this is what the dad does. Dad stops. Can you imagine this with the teenage son? Give me your iPhone, please. Thank you. Blackberry also, thank you. Look at me. Not beside, here. And then this is what he does. He says, son, I've told you the power of wisdom and what God will do for you if you do things for him in relationship. I've sung a song to you, and you found that weird, but I sang a song to you that is profound. And then he says, now I need to tell you again, like I have for the last two sessions, there are things you must never do. For if you do, you will become a mocker, and you will become a fool, and you will become the opposite of wisdom And you will become a person of destruction and not life. And so this father, with an intensity that any good dad has, looks at his son and tells him about the power of judgment and discerning. You can read it from 21 to 26. But then he gets to the five no's. And here's what they are. Ready? Verse 27. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back later. I'll give it to you tomorrow when you have it with you now. Do not withhold any good from a neighbor. Don't even delay giving a neighbor what they truly need. Money, a tool, physical aid. You actually may owe honor to people. You may owe people money. You actually may owe people forgiveness. Tomorrow is an old way of saying procrastination. It's putting off what we are called by heaven to do. People, he says, that are wise are trustworthy and they're attentive to the needs of their community. It's not just about them. But it's not just about helping in the good or bad times. It's about trust and truth. Here's the next one, verse 29. Do not plot harm, my son, against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. Do not plan to harm anyone. Do not gossip. Do not slander. Do not steal. Do not murder by anger, by word, or by deed. Do not covet. As one preached, doing something evil will breed never confidence, but suspicion and fear in any community. Never forget that before actions, there are motives, and then those motives become words, and words have the power to destroy or create. That's why the next admonition is this. Verse 30, do not accuse a person for no reason. When he has done you no harm. False accusation. This always leads to the disruption of a community. This really is saying find out all the facts. Go to the source before you ever open your mouth. How this could have saved Crothers Creek time and time again in the last six years. From factions and division. If this would just be followed. I find the pattern here this way with many. You talk and talk and talk and talk. And then maybe you choose to ask. And then you find out the facts. And then you get the fuller picture. But then you never go back to all the people you vented to. And so they're still left with all you said. Which breeds distrust and accusation and death. This is like a virus in a family or church or community that cannot be found or cured or stopped. You're saying, what What are you saying, John? It's simple. Shh. Do not accuse. Be slow to speak. Quick to listen. The fabric of a family, a neighborhood, or a church is strengthened or torn right here in this place. Judgment without knowledge is dangerous. The father comes and says to his son, Be careful always to be generous. 
Be careful never to plot in your heart destruction. Be careful not to judge or speak or vent without knowledge. And then he ends by saying, Do not envy a violent person or choose their ways. For the Lord detests a perverse man, but takes the upright into his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of a righteous person. He mocks the proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. The wise inherit honor, but fools he holds up to shame. The call from last week is given again. Do not want, do not long after sin. Do not think that the wicked will have a better deal in the end. They will not. As David cried out himself in Psalm 73, as for me, My foot almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. Surely in vain I've washed my hands of innocent. I've tried to all understand this. It's oppressive. Until I entered the sanctuary of God and understood the wicked's destiny. Simply put, worship and wisdom will lead you away from a lifestyle of envying those and living with those that in the end God is going to bring down himself. And this is one, again, we must all, as we end here, embrace fearing God. God is all-powerful, not us. God is all-knowing, not us. He is God, and we are only like the grass. In the morning, bright and crisp and gone in the evening, especially, I would say, this weekend. We are animated dust. He is uncreated. And if we choose a crooked path, by word or by deed or by action, we dismiss God or we mock God, or here's the real thing, even as Christians... If we believe in God, but we practice atheism, we act like he's not really there. This will result in our own self-created, self-inflicted reality. God lets us go, and we become the mocker, and then the mocker gets mocked by the author of reality itself. But then the Father says, but if you choose the path of life and wisdom, God, being a gracious, gracious dad, will come and bring things to you you could never imagine. And I can just imagine the dad ending by saying, Son, there are always two paths. Which one will you take? I end this way today. Very simply, lots of people say, John, I need the so what? What's the take home? Well, I'm going to be different than I usually am. The whole passage is the take home. One person summarized this, this passage this way, three ways. He said, do not be wise in your own eyes that you fail to trust God's ways are best. Just, just hear that. Let me say it again. Do not be wise in your own eyes and fail to trust that God's ways actually are best. That can happen to the best of us as Christians. Second thing, don't reject the Lord's teaching so you miss the life-giving riches of wisdom. And the last thing is, do not lose your sense of judgment and discernment so you actually start taking what belongs to your neighbor. As Alan and the team come up and lead us in a time of response and communion, uh, I would just like to lead in a simple prayer, if you would join me genuinely, um, if you can. And I'm going to lead you in some questions. And you can talk to the Lord, because I have no clue where you are today. And this is for you online too, wherever you might be, go train or otherwise. And so why don't you just bow, get your heart ready. And this is a good prep for communion too. It just goes like this. God comes to us as a community this morning and asks these things. Do you love my wisdom? Eyes closed, think about this. Do you love my wisdom? Is there any place in your life as a Christian you've started to think that actually 
God's ways aren't that good and you know better. Just acknowledge it. Maybe there's a few other things you need to hear this morning. Are you withholding something you have to give your neighbor? Money, time. Actually, are there some of you that need to forgive others? Forgiveness never means forgetting. It means choosing with God's help over time to never use it against them again. Are you plotting to harm anyone today? Hear this, please. And you again watching or listening, hear this. Are you plotting to harm someone? God, because he loves you, is intervening at this moment and saying, no, don't do it because it will bring death, not life. Here's another question. Have you or are you by word or deed accusing someone, a group, without facts? Are you this person? The Lord comes to you and says, stop. Please understand. He says this in love. That person's made in my image or that community are my people. Be careful. Stop, he says. Do you need to go back, God says to some of you, and talk to the many you vented to without the facts and now you know some truth and if that's you, go back because unity, purity, relationships matter in eternity in the now. And lastly, God says to some of you, and I don't know who you are very directly, are you flirting? Are you thinking? Are you planning of going down a path with people that you know will bring you down, but it just seems easier or more exciting or more powerful or more sensual? God comes to you again without anger, but holy love and says, son, daughter, run. Those people whom I love too will still only bring you death. I want to give you honor and blessing. I do not want you to do this. So if that's you, let's just pray a simple prayer. So holy God of heaven and earth, author of the Proverbs, giver of the tree of life, the one who out of love shows us how to live as very naive children in a very dangerous world. Our prayer this morning is, Lord, forgive us. Lord, give us ears to hear, especially as we've done church for a long time. We've heard so much. Ears to really hear, eyes to really see, hearts that are really open. And Lord, if anyone has silently or out loud just confessed to you, oh, that's me. I pray for forgiveness, restoration, forgiveness, hope, wisdom, and I pray for the benefits of life now moving forward, whether they're 10 or 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, or older, no matter where they are, you always can bring resurrection life back. And so that is my prayer today out of Proverbs 3. I ask this in the name of the Father who has called us, in the name of the Son who died for us because he loves us, in the name of the Holy Spirit who fills us and allows us to live a life that Proverbs speaks about. And all of God's people said, amen. Why don't you stand? And we're going to prepare to respond today with communion. And uh, we do communion differently here at different days. And so today, um, some people will serve you. We have chalices today, so you can just take a cracker and you can dip it in. As we say all the time, communion is the great symbol of Jesus' death and resurrection. It is the symbol of the tree of life. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to this table. Jesus said to his friends just before he was murdered for us, my body's going to be broken. He took a cup of wine and said, this is my blood. He says, anyone who follows me is welcome to remember He also said in the scriptures through Paul, if you're not a Christian, don't take this yet because you haven't embraced him. But he also says, if you're on the run from God, don't take it, but you can return. My encouragement to you as we take communion and respond is that 
You think through Proverbs, pray about it, and respond to him. God bless you today. Let's meet Jesus. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, caruthercreek.ca.